Church History Matters, Episode 37. Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. I am Joseph Knowles, and I will be joined by Ruben and our guest for today's episode in just a minute. Um, before we do that, just want to give you a quick reminder that you can now find us on servantsandheralds.com, along with a couple other podcasts that you want to check out, Script v. Manuscript, hosted by Joe and Terry, who will talk about some books and movies that they've enjoyed and see where the parallels or differences are between the book and the movie version. You also want to check out the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast hosted by Jeff and Jared while they were th- talk about all things pop culture and how that relates to the Christian life and walk. So check those out at servantsandheralds.com. Also be sure that you go to uh, Facebook and give the Facebook page a like or follow us on Twitter or Instagram uh, so we can help spread the word about the show. We've seen a lot of growth on the Facebook page recently and we're great grateful for that Uh, but we'd like to see it keep going and see if we can reach more people with the the things that we're trying to talk about all right now on to our interview we are joined today on the church history matters podcast by pastor oliver almond smith and he is the author of the book that we're going to talk about today the title of which is under god over the people The Calling and Accountability of the Civil Government, a Confessional Perspective. So Pastor Oliver is an elder at Trinity Grace Church in Ramsbottom, Greater Manchester, England. He's also a trustee of Reformation Today magazine and on the board of Trinity Pastors College in Nairobi, Kenya. He does have a background in history, um, having read history at Cambridge and with a major in the Reformation periods. So we're glad to have him on the podcast today. And uh, if you wouldn't just mind uh, briefly add anything to that introduction in the way of a personal note that you would like to. Um, and then if you would roll into that, uh, just a brief testimony of how you came to know the Lord. Yeah. Thanks, Joseph. Ruben, good to be with you, man, this afternoon. Trust the Lord will bless our, uh, our conversation together. Um, yeah. Uh, you covered a lot there in that little brief uh, outline. Um, the only thing I would add is that uh, the Lord's been good to me in giving me a a faithful, lovely wife, uh, these 27 years now, I think. Right. And uh, and we have six children. Um, the Lord's been good. And the eldest is to be married on Monday. So oh, great. congratulations. That's awesome. Praise, praise God for that. To a, praise God, a yeah. Lady. Yeah, very mm-hmm. thankful. Great. And uh, my own uh, conversion story, I was brought up um, knowing the gospel, understanding something of it, but um, definitely unsaved, Mm. not having any kind of heart of love for Christ. It's funny, I I always believed, um, I mean, I'd have made a good Sandemanian, I always believed the content of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, I knew perfectly well I wasn't a Christian. Um, so you could have asked me any question as a child. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And I'd have said, yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, even down to the finer points of Calvinism and so on. Uh, but uh, if you'd asked me, are you saved? I'd have said, no, I'm, I'm not saved. Um, that happened when I was 17. 
um, actually when I was stateside, I was in Chicago, Illinois at the time on a, a school exchange program. We were performing uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night in a school in Chicago. Can't remember which one, but I do remember that I got myself in a pretty bad way. And um, yeah, it was uh, at that low point that the Lord graciously uh, raised me up and gave me a new heart um, and, uh, and called me to himself and made me his child. So that was when I was 17 and I almost immediately began uh, teaching, preaching to young people, uh, seizing every opportunity I had. And uh, the calling to the ministry came after that, then preparations. And it was when I was 27, I entered into pastoral ministry and I've been here in North Manchester uh, for these 24-ish years now. Thank you for that. And the other kind of introductory question we asked of all the guests is what, you know, we're a church history podcast. We think it's important to study church history, but we also like to hear why you think it's important for not just, you know, people who are going into pastoral ministry, but the person in the pew, so to speak, to know at least a little bit or have a general lay of the land when it comes to that topic. Yeah, well, that's a very big question, yeah. uh, Joseph, and, and uh, it would take our whole podcast to answer. Sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to give you a very brief answer, sure. which is really woefully inadequate. Um, the reason why it is absolutely essential, not just important, not just helpful, but absolutely essential for every Christian to have some grasp of church history is that we need to know positively how God has built his church since the apostolic age. Um, and that will give us encouragement that will, that will bless us, that will strengthen us in our faith, that will show us how the scriptures and the promises of the scripture, particularly the Great Commission, has been worked out over time. And it will spur us on and strengthen us positively. But also negatively, church history will teach us uh, what we need to avoid. It will teach us how easy it is to fall into error. Church history will teach us that it only takes a one degree move off the straight and narrow path today to lead to utter oblivion in one generation. It only mm -hmm. takes one generation for one small error to lead to complete abandonment of, of the faith as we know it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the controversies of church history and the way in which the creeds and confessions, particularly that we have from the period of the, the father church fathers through to the Reformation period. Um, these two periods in particular prove to be incredibly important in 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 refining uh, our understanding of biblical truth. Mm. So that any any Christian who is naive enough to think that he can just pick up his Bible, read it and gain a perfect understanding, uh, quotes with the help of the Holy Spirit, right. uh, clearly has not read his church history. Mm. And if he read his church history, he would not make that error. He would be far more humble, far more careful and far more blessed. There's mm. a brief answer. Yeah, that's great. Like wonderful answer. The next question is, we did have you on to, to talk about the book specifically. And um, sure. Could you tell us, you know, why why this particular book and why at this particular time? Because it, it's very specific in what it's talking about, but I'm sure there's a lot that went into that decision. 
Certainly, yeah. Well, obviously, we're all aware of something that happened uh, back in early 2020. Um, <laughs> some people call what it. A, <laughs> some people would call it a pandemic, which I'm sure is a valid description. But really, I would prefer to call it a, a, a state intervention in mm. our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you agree with it or not is, is a matter of personal judgment. But it was statist action like mm -hmm. we've never seen in our lifetime, for sure. Yes. In the West. Uh, and that took the form largely of lockdowns and, and restrictions on, on normal life. And um, that then, of course raises questions for Christians. Um, it raises questions for Christians in their family lives when the state begin to tell you what you can and cannot do with your family. Certainly that was the uh, case over here. We were told that we weren't allowed to have certain people in our households and that when we were in our households, we must do this and we mustn't do that. So that we had state intervention in our households. We had state intervention in our workplaces. Some were shut down altogether. Uh, some were allowed to carry on with restrictions and rules uh, and, uh, you know, various degrees in between. So we had state intervention there. Uh, and of course, we had state intervention in our churches, uh, significant state intervention in our churches. Mm -hmm. Over here throughout that period, we had all kinds of things we were told we could do, and couldn't do, must do, mustn't do. Uh, you know, whether you're thinking about mask mandates, social distancing, sanitizing of this that and the other uh not touching people uh we even had a scenario over here where we were told um that we mustn't sing that if we're going to gather we mustn't sing and if we did sing we must do this and we must do that that we mustn't have the lord's supper and if we felt we absolutely had to then we mustn't sing over the supper and we mustn't do this and we mustn't do that and so on and so on and so on uh, it got to the point over here where worshippers were criminalized for gathering so that you would be guilty of a criminal offense and would have a criminal record for mm -hmm. walking to a place of worship and participating in worship. But at the very same time, if you walked to that same place of worship and participated in a food bank or a support class mm -hmm. or some kind of uh, community action program, you would not be criminalized. Mm -hmm. so this was an extraordinary uh, 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 intervention of the state the civil authority in our uh, lives at every level but obviously of special concern at the level of the church and and so we we considered to ourselves as a church how should we respond well i think it's true to say the vast majority of us were unprepared in march of 2020 and we will call on the hoof and all the 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 declarations of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people dying uh, it was a kind of a shock factor wasn't it we, right. we really need know how to respond but as the months go by and the evidence comes out and we begin to have a more measured nuanced response then we asked ourselves as a church what is the biblical position here how should we react to these things and uh, then because we believe in church history and we're because we are reformed and we stand in the reformed tradition we went back to our confession of faith and our confession is the second london baptist confession of 1677 adopted in 1689 mm -hmm. and uh we have chapter 24 there of the civil uh government of the civil authority and uh, we made a series of studies in that here in the church and then the book came out of that so we made a detailed study of chapter 24 
we we thought about what it meant for us as a church we actually followed that up with a church members meeting a congregational meeting uh where we where we discussed state intervention and we came to the conclusion that this was the beginning of a new phase of of, of persecution of, mm-hmm. of god's people mm-hmm. that uh, the, the civil authorities were using the pandemic as a uh, as a cover really for mm. intervening and controlling churches in a way they hadn't been able to do. So that's that's the background to the book. That's why it, it came to be and how it came to be. Great. I'll be quiet and let uh, let Ruben talk now. Oh no, I was gonna I was just gonna offer to read the chapters, but uh but it's, oh, only, yeah, three, go ahead. it's only three paragraphs. Um, chapter 24 of the civil magistrate. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Essentially Romans 13, Mm -hmm. one through four. Very clear there. Uh, Paragraph two, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto and the management whereof as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Uh, Paragraph three, civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. And we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceful life, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. All right, so that's the, the first three, uh, or the, the three paragraphs, the entirety mm-hmm. of chapter 24, speaking to the civil magistrate. Um, so, uh, brother, in this period, they had a lot of folks that were, really, really championing Romans 13 here. And I think this also points back to a lack of understanding of church history and how the the church throughout the ages have interpreted and understood Romans 13, because a lot of people were condemning other Christians for continuing to gather. Um, did you experience any of that? Oh, very much so, Rubin. Yeah, we, we put our heads above the parapet and we said, look, we should be gathering. We should be resisting the authorities. And we took a lot of flack for that. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure you had the same uh, over there with yourselves. I think the issue of Romans 13 is an incredibly important one. It links with 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. You have the same kind of statements in those passages. And, and it connects really with our Baptist forebears, actually, from the 17th century. One of the reasons why they phrase the, the paragraphs the way they do is because they were trying to avoid the accusation of being Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists of that period were the radicals. They were the revolutionaries. They were the ones who were for basically overthrowing the civil authority, or at least setting up uh, an alternative um, state within a state, as it were, and and resisting basically from the word go. And uh, and so the emphasis on Romans 13, you quite rightly pointed out there in paragraph one, was the was the Baptist way of saying, look, we do believe in the duly constituted civil authority. And we do believe that we should be subject to them in in every way we possibly can. However, in paragraph three there, you have that statement in all things lawful. And that's the bit that we seem to have missed, that 
uh, we're not to submit to the civil authorities in things that are unlawful. Which law? Well, clearly not the civil law, uh, but God's law. So, so when the civil authorities command us to be subject to them in matters which are against the law of God, then there's absolutely no question. It's not, it's not up for debate. It's not a discussion. It's just absolutely crystal clear that we do not listen and respond to the civil authorities' instruction. So let us say that the civil authorities command you not to meet together. Uh, what is your response to that? Well, your response is to say, look, whether we meet or not has nothing to do with you. If we decide not to meet, we decide not to meet. It's our responsibility under Christ. Christ is out of the church. Look at chapter 26, paragraph four of our confession relates to that. Christ is out of the church, not the papacy and certainly not the civil authority. You know, in England, we threw off the papacy, uh, but then we have the problem of, 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 the, uh, of, the, of, of the king being head of state now and then head of the church. And we have that problem here. Uh, and our fathers in the faith are saying, no, 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 there's one head of the church is Jesus Christ. So the churches are under him and we do what he commands us to do. So is it acceptable for a church to decide not to meet? Well, of course, under certain circumstances, the point is, it's their decision right. for the government to criminalize people. And let's reemphasize that's what happened here to criminalize people for gathering for worship. Totally unacceptable from the word go. And, and even if the church believes that it's right not to meet, they should still speak out against that. OK, right. we're going to decide not to meet, but we want it to be absolutely clear. We're not meeting because you've you, our decision not to meet has got nothing to do with you criminalizing us. Well, I don't understand how Christians can't see that. I, I just I'm absolutely. Well I, if I could offer a, an idea, and this is just a thought, and I, I think Joseph and I, we're, we're very libertarian, libertarian leaning. Yeah, easy there. I, I, wouldn't say, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say full on libertarian, and we could get into categories there, but libertarian leaning in philosophy. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of American Christians, and I think people in general throughout the world have really kind of come to see the state as the arbiter of that which is good and evil, which is insane because the 20th century, was one of the bloodiest historically, and that came about by the state, the state waging war against their own people, the state waging war against others. And uh, I, I, I see that a lot when people think, well, the state has determined that it would be immoral for you to gather because you're putting other lives in danger for whatever reason they provided. And so I think there's a, there's a, a lost reverence for the, the truth of the church being the one that determines and I say the church, and really what I mean is, is God's word. Um, Absolutely. That stand so on God's word. You read from paragraph one, God has decided what the role of the civil authority is. And, and people need to understand the civil authority is not responsible to educate your children. It's not right. responsible to make you healthy. And it's definitely not responsible to make you wealthy. It's not the economy. It's not education. And it's not health care. What is the responsibility of the state, the civil authority? It is to defend and encourage them that do good and punish evildoers. Who decides what is good and what is evil? God. That's right. So when a civil authority sets itself up to defend the evildoer and to punish those who do good, we have, a, we have an Isaiah 520 situation on, on our hands. They call good evil and evil good. 
We have a Romans one situation. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and they are excusing their wickedness. Then we have a massive problem on our hands as believers under that authority, because we are going to find ourselves, I point this out in the book, having necessarily to resist that civil authority. Do we not have the books of Daniel and Revelation in our Bibles? Do they not speak of the civil authority as monsters and beasts? Not always, but often, often. And, and why then do we uh, say, well, the civil authority says we should shut our churches down. Romans 13 says, obey them, shut down. Ay, ay, ay. Talk about church history naivety. Mm -hmm. uh, it's absolutely off the scale. Shocking. So, uh, what, uh, brother, we actually had a president recently, uh, a few a few presidents back. I believe it was 43 or 44. Well, uh, let, let's put names out to, to protect the innocent. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> or the identifiable who. Yeah. Uh, if a U.S. Famous, uh, president famously said, um, when talking about deciding, he said, I am the decider. When it comes to marking the limits of government authorities, we obviously see that, and you already you just said that Jesus Christ and the God has determined what that role is. So that's that's kind of where we are in our uh, current era. What what was the the lay of the land in the time in which this confession was written? That what were the things that were going on there? Oh well, that, it was it was a time, wasn't it, of massive uh, turmoil, Ruben, in in Western society, massive massive turmoil. And great uh, upheavals. So, again, this is a massive question that you're asking. But if we just home in uh, on the 17th century in, in England itself, what, what you've had is an enormous tussle between the civil authorities and the church. And, and this, this, this fight, this wrestling match has been going on. So from, from 1562 onwards, the beginning of the Elizabethan settlement, for 100 years, you had many, many Puritans within the Church of England fighting to make the Church of England a, uh, a Presbyterian state church, a state church that was that was fundamentally rooted in uh, the scriptures and was, to use their phrase, root and branch reformed, that it was it was thoroughly reformed because by 1562, uh, when this began, this process began. Uh, the Church of England was only semi-reformed. Yes, it had severed with Rome and all the rest of it, but it had never embraced a full reformation. And the Elizabethan settlement, as we know, was a halfway house. It was a deliberate halfway house. And you still had the monarch as the head of state and so on and so on. And what you have in the 17th century, then, is this tussle, particularly in the Civil War period from 1641 right the way uh, through to the, to the end of the Protectorate in 1658. What you have is this hiatus, this high point, this high watermark of the progress of, of the Puritans within the Church of England, men such as John Owen, very famous to all our listeners, I'm sure, mm -hmm. who gained great influence. I mean, Owen for a time was, was um, advisor and chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector. But unfortunately, from 1660 onwards, uh, we have the restoration of Charles II. And despite the, the efforts of some of the Presbyterians, despite the promises that were made to General Monk and those who were responsible for inviting Charles II back, what you had was a very swift decline 
in the cause of genuine reformed Christianity within the Church of England from 1662 onwards. You had the Act of Uniformity, you had the Five Mile Act, and all these acts basically that were turfing Puritan biblical men out of their, their churches. Uh, and, and the Five Mile Act actually in 1665, I think it was, made it illegal for a Puritan pastor to go within five miles of his old parish because what was happening was that they were maintaining contact and continuing their ministry. So tremendous period of turmoil, time of terrible persecution in the 1660s and the 1670s, upheaval caused by the Anabaptists in Europe and, and, and these divisions within the churches. And it was in that into that context that our confession of faith is written. And, and what the Baptists, the, the particular Baptists, as we now would refer to them, the Reformed Baptists were seeking to do back then, was to say, look, we're not radical extremists. We're not with the, the continental Anabaptists. We don't want to throw off all civil authority. You know, we don't want to take up arms against the state and so on. But at the same time, we do believe that individual churches, as you come, to, you know, you come through Presbyterianism into the Congregationalism of John Owen and the Savoy Declaration, 1558, and then into the Baptist position, which is full independency of local churches. And what they want to say in, in this confession is authority lies with the local church. That's the ultimate mm -hmm. conviction that we have as Baptists, that authority lies with the local church and it is the local churches under Christ who make these judgments. And when we come to these doctrines as they unfold in these particular chapters, 24 and 26, that's what they're driving at. Yes, we are subject to the governing authorities, but only in so far as they are under God. And hence the title of my book, Under God Over the People. Mm -hmm. yeah the civil authority is over us and this is a phrase taken from the confession but only insofar as they are under god if they usurp the authority of god if they deny god's laws if they call good evil and evil good and so on then it's not just possible that we might resist them civil disobedience it's necessary yeah. that we resist them mm -hmm. amen one thing that i noticed in comparing the our confession with the Westminster confession, which on, you know, in a lot of places is just word for word, the same yeah. is that in the, in the second paragraph there of, of chapter 24, it's chapter 23 in Westminster. Um, but it says they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each Commonwealth. But that word, there's just one word that's omitted from the, from the Baptist confession, which is piety. So there's another significant difference that in, in talking about the history of it, that, that definitely comes out when you just put them side by side and say, well, that's one word, but it seems like a pretty significant one too. It is a very significant one, Joseph. Well, you know, very helpful to point that out. And of course, that's because Westminster is rooted in the Genevan tradition, you know, mm -hmm. through Knox and the, and the others. Right. Spend that time there in, in Geneva with, with Calvin and this conviction that yes, the churches are to govern themselves, mm -hmm. but they are to govern themselves in a partnership with the civil authority. You, know, you had the, the consistory and, and the church kind of working together in Geneva and that therefore the churches are responsible for the piety of the people at large. Not, not just the, the believers, <clears throat> but the, well, I mean, it becomes confused then. I right, don't yeah. want to go down that route. Yeah, that's a rabbit trail. <laughs> but yeah, that's where that difference is coming. So what mm -hmm. we're saying, or 
certainly what I would want to say from our confession is that the civil authority has no jurisdiction whatsoever in the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. And it's not for the churches to go to the civil authority and say, we have these spiritual convictions. Will you please enforce them with the sword? No, 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 not at all. Uh, they have a responsibility that relates, as I point out into the book, in the book, to the second table of the law, not the first table of the law. And, and, and it goes that far and no further. So this, this distinction, this separation is there. But at the same time, the Baptists are concerned to point out that there is a role for Christians within the civil authority. It's mm-hmm. perfectly valid for a Christian to be a civil magistrate and to be a godly magistrate. And they would point to the examples in scripture, such as Joseph and Daniel and, and others. Uh, and then, of course, throughout church history, we see that, don't we? We mm-hmm. see it with men. We've mentioned Cromwell. We could talk about Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury over here. You would have examples yourselves in the States right. as well. Men who've had an enormous influence for good. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they've labored within the civil magistracy we need christians in the civil magistracy and uh and we thank god for them but they've got to be bold they've got to be bold yeah you you can't afford to be machiavellian here and argue that the end justifies them means i'll stay quiet on abortion because i'll have some influence on euthanasia or i'll stay quiet on what's going on in 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 state schools because i want to have some influence on what's going on in in some other part of, of the civil realm. No, 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 no. You've got to speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I point out in the book, I think there's a lot of naivety amongst Christians <laughs> in the civil realm. There's kind of assumption that, that most civil authorities, most governors are, 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 have good motives and they're doing their best. Oh, how often have I heard that? Mm-hmm. They're doing their best. Why do we think that? Read Romans 1. Paul doesn't seem to think they're doing their best. Mm, right. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Yeah. So, you know, we need to wise up to what's going on. Yeah, this uh, that kind of brings me to the next, the next question, which is um, speaking to those exact spheres, right? So Christians are allowed to uh, participate within the sphere of the civil realm, civil authorities. Um, though the state has its given realm, its sphere of influence, the church has its realm of authority. Um, we the Bible says the church is given the keys to the kingdom. Um, and then in the household, you have the father, which is, is every every layer of rule for each of these spheres is laid out in scripture. Is there ever a time when those spheres may overlap besides the Christian going out into the, you know, living in the world yeah. um, and working? Is it, where is that and why would that be allowed? Yeah, I, I deal with this uh, in chapter five. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the godly citizen, what does it mean to be a godly citizen? And this whole question of, of the overlap of jurisdiction. Um, the first thing I would say is that the civil authority never has any authority over spiritual matters. So going back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, the difference with Westminster, there is no involvement in spiritual matters at all. So that's an absolute line. They don't cross that line. I mean, to be telling us how we can and should celebrate the Lord's Supper or how we can and should sing or when we should sing and when we shouldn't sing. No authority. None. We've got to be absolutely clear on that. These are spiritual matters. But we can envisage areas of overlap. So, for example, again, I point out in the book, what about the example of a pastor who is guilty of 
some form of sexual abuse. Well, that is, he's, he's breaking the law of the land, he's breaking the civil law, uh, and so it, it is only right for the churches then, in that sense, to hand over that citizen of the state to the rightful authority, for the rightful authorities to deal with that matter and for the churches to cooperate. We don't believe in ecclesiastical courts. Mm -hmm. right. You know, what, what a nonsense. There's one court, it's the court of the land, and then there's, and then there's the issue of church discipline, isn't there, which is not a court. Mm -hmm. that, that's the church gathered together, seeking the mind of Christ under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and making decisions about people's um, fellowship within the church and that the nature of their communion with Christ as it is manifested in the church. Those two things, there may be overlap, as I say. So a church may decide to put a man out. But you may have a scenario in which, for example, a pastor has been guilty of sexual immorality and he's repented of it. And as a result of that repentance, he's restored to communion. Now, personally, it's another subject. Personally, I don't believe he can be restored to the pastor at that. But right. he can be restored to communion. We, 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 we're not woke, are we? We're not, we don't, we're not critical race theorists. We don't believe there's no redemption for anybody. Right. Right. I mean, right. us three here, we're all beyond redemption, aren't we? We're, we're <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Patriarchy, we're finished. There's no hope for us. <laughs> don't go visit that high priesthood they'll just condemn you forever to hell quite literally right um, yeah we, we believe in redemption don't we? we we believe in forgiveness so a man has committed some terrible sin he repents of it there is forgiveness and he can be restored to communion but there's still a civil issue to be dealt with there is still the people that he has committed crimes against so we can envisage a scenario then in which he is in fellowship and communion in the church but he is undergoing some kind of uh, court hearing that could end up with him being imprisoned. Right. I don't see a problem with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that we don't think through these issues is where we end up in trouble. Mm. Um, so yes, overlap, but really when you think a little bit more carefully, the overlap only arises because we haven't divided the jurisdictions clearly enough. You know, if a father is, is beating his son so that his son is black and blue, then that's an issue of, of assault, isn't it? Right. If the father right. is chastising his son, and it's very clear in scripture that that chastisement is to be done in love, uh, but there is to be a physical element to it, um, then the, 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 the civil authorities have no jurisdiction. So as long as we're clear in our minds, then the gray areas become smaller and smaller. Uh, they'll always be there, but they'll be relatively small. And usually we'll know where we stand. That's good. And speaking of those kind of ideas or areas where there might be overlap, uh, uh, one that maybe is a little or seems a little bit more gray to our 21st century sensibilities is kind of related to the sexual abuse scenario that, that you brought up, but adultery, which until uh, the last three or four years was still a criminal offense in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, so would that be another example of perhaps one where uh, there is an overlap between the state and the church? Or is that something that, um, I mean, historically, I think the answer is yes. But now if you ask the average person on the street, even Christians, the answer would be, oh, absolutely not. 
Very interesting question, uh, Joseph, and I don't think I don't think it's a straightforward answer. If you go back to the 17th century, I mean, adultery was so hard uh, that, that uh, sorry, divorce was so hard mm-hmm. uh, that it was almost impossible to get one. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the reasons why so few people were divorced back then is because you I, I think I'm right in saying you had to have an act of parliament mm. uh, to get a divorce, something like that. Yeah. So um, obviously that's connected with the issue of adultery, but 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 still um, distinct from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of adultery, yeah, it, it's an interesting discussion and debate to have because, of course, today the idea that the state would have any involvement whatsoever in people's private lives mm-hmm. uh, is anathema, and yet they clearly do because right. to be married. You have to have the state to conduct the marriage and the state has to produce a certificate. Mm-hmm. And it's the state who decides who can get married and who can't get married, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. the state that decides we're going to have two men getting married or one man and two women or right. whatever. You know, they, they decide this. They decide whether you can get divorced and remarried and all the rules. So it's kind of seems to be a double standard mm-hmm. here. Uh, we we. On the one hand, we want to make the rules, but on the other hand, we 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 don't we we claim that we don't have any involvement in people's lives at that level. Uh, I think that's naive, and certainly, what the state should do about adultery, if anything, is a question for discussion. Yeah, but certainly, the state should be teaching the need for one man, one woman for life. That's good, isn't it? That, that they should be rewarding the good. Right. So at the very least, they should be rewarding that good. They should be teaching it, promoting it. They should be giving massive tax breaks and benefits to those who go down that route. And in fact, what do they do? They do the very opposite. Mm-hmm. Certainly over here. I think the most tax people are people who are married in a long term stable relationship where the wife is at home caring for the children. This is just like the worst tax scenario you could ever hope for. So I think there is, there clearly is a role of, of, of the civil authority here, whether they like it or not, mm. whether they like it or not, they have it. Um, marriage is given to all creation, isn't it? Genesis 2. It's not just given to Christians. Right. We're not Romanists. It's not a Christian sacrament. It's for all people. And so there clearly is a role of the state there. And, and that's a debate that ought to be had, but never is. We're just so far away from it. Right. It's just a catastrophe, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of speaks to how how far we've how far we've come in terms of being able to to think as Christians about what the proper role of government is for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly for us here at the beginning of the uh, the the COVID scenario back in March 2020, one of the first things our civil authorities did was to bring in emergency an emergency law which allowed for women who were in the first stage of pregnancy, the first trimester, to apply to have pills sent to them through the letterbox, which would enable them to slaughter their child in their own home. Mm. And they brought that law in, in the third week of March, at the very same time when they were saying, you must stay at home to save lives. Mm. But they're saying, you must stay at home to save lives. Oh, and by the way, if you have a life of the most vulnerable and the most innocent 
and the most defenseless of all human beings in your own home in that in your own womb in that home then we will freely send you pills so that you can slaughter the child mm. and that law which was supposed to be temporary has just been brought onto the statute book in our parliament <clears throat> no. mm. so so women are now free on the basis of a telephone call not even they don't even have to visit a clinic they don't even have to go and speak to a doctor face to face they can just make a phone call and the pills will be sent now that that's where we are mm-hmm. what a mess yeah mm. so yeah actually i was going to say that a lot of the laws that are on the books that at least over here um you know a lot of them were based on a christian foundation uh, it appears though anyway like christian morality so there's a big push in certain areas of Christianity for a reconstructionist, theonomous type of uh, idea in which they would say also, hey, we're supposed to go and make uh, disciples of the nations. And as we do that, we expect the Lord to bless the work and whole towns will be saved. And, and then the town will have to be ruled by its civil laws, which will now consist of a majority, if not fully, of Christians. How how do we further parse that scenario if there is a situation that would occur, which I, I think some places are really trying to push for that, to get Christians into the political arena uh, locally uh, on, in the township level and then uh, enact or retract laws that they find to be immoral or against God's law? You guys, are, you guys are wanting to talk about everything, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the theonomy now. <laughs> um, no, I mean, this, this This is flawed on so many levels, isn't it? At the most fundamental level, it, it, it's flawed hermeneutically. It's flawed in our in, in the way we're reading our Bibles. We, we, we simply cannot take the scenario of Israel in the wilderness or in, or, or in Israel, in, in the land of Israel, uh, and say our, our contemporary situation is to be a duplication of that. I mean, we've had that. We've had that here in the UK with all kinds of groups over the years, even British Israelites claiming that, that, that we are the, the modern manifestation of the Jewish nation. Uh, and, and we should be duplicating precisely what we have going on under David and under Moses uh, in our own civil context. This is completely flawed, completely flawed, because there is a significant figure that comes between David and Moses yeah. and us. He's called Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And he he changed everything, didn't he? He he changed he because he fulfilled everything. It's not that it's not that the jot and tittle of the of, of, of those laws has been done away, as in blown up, as in we don't need to read them anymore. But is that he has fulfilled them all? They are fulfilled in him. Mm-hmm. He is David. He is. Moses, he is Israel. It is all fulfilled in him. So then we need to understand on the other side of Christ, how we are to work these things out in and through him. And it becomes extremely clear, doesn't it? That, that, that in, the, in, in the new covenant age in which we now live, in this age of the covenant of grace manifested in Christ, it's all about the church, the church as distinct from the civil authority. And, and we are the vehicle through which Christ is 
winning the nations. It's not the civil authority. Mm-hmm. It's just not there. Uh, it's our calling. And the two are then to be kept distinct. And again, this is where I think our Baptist forebears, our particular Baptist forebears really help us mm-hmm. to understand yeah. that because they they came at the end of this process in the 17th century after all the disappointments. I mean, let's face it, guys, a hundred years, it was exactly hundred years from 1562 to 1662 when genuine godly men were fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting within the Church of England to make it what it what they believed it should be and eventually they were all thrown out really properly thrown out right 62 63 64 65 in that in that period they were out 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 it did not work and we now recognize you know through our baptist forebears look it's about the church now come on and it's very interesting to me, speaking as a, a, an English Reformed Baptist, looking at the situation in America and how Presbyterians in America have adopted necessarily a different form of Presbyterianism to the Presbyterians in England. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you know, you have your constitution. Uh, and, and so the idea of a, of a state church Presbyterianism is, is not even possible. So. That chapter 23, I think, Joseph, you were mentioning in the American context is changed, isn't it, from Westminster for that very reason. Mm-hmm. But, but this theonomist view, it, it simply cannot be allowed to stand. We have to tear it down. And essentially, we do so hermeneutically, I think. Yeah. And I, I was going to just add, you know, historically speaking, I would think Baptists especially would be the most wary of moving in that direction, given some of the history that you mentioned in England, but then also, uh, you know, I was listening to another podcast that went into some of the history here in Puritan New England and some of the things that men and women who genuinely came to Baptist conv- convictions uh, were subjected to by, you know, the famous Puritan uh, John Winthrop, who's, you know, he's he's got his sermon, uh, A Model of Christian Charity, but then, you know, you read some of the... Uh, some of the punishments that were imposed, I mean, not just Baptists, but Quakers as well, on uh, dissenters. And you start to think, well, maybe we should maybe we should be very careful about the direction we're going in, given some of the, the history there. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. brother. I don't have anything else. I was okay. just going to ask when your book is, is going to be published and uh, how can we how can we purchase it? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the book is going to be out next month. In, March, in May, we don't have an exact date, but it will be in May. It's gone to the printers now. So uh, that's where we're up to. And uh, you can obtain it through brokenwharf.com. Uh, the reason for the name Broken Wharf, W-H-A-R-F-E, the old English spelling, that is where our, fa- our fathers met in 1689 on the uh, River Thames. This was the wharf on the Thames where they met the church near there and they adopted the confession uh, then so that's where broken wolf comes from it's a confessional baptist resource center and uh, we're forging a partnership at the moment with uh one of our brethren in the states to distribute copies of the book there so you basically you go on to broken wolf and place your order and we'll do the rest that's Excellent. great uh any any final words um you know i guess what would be your ele- elevator pitch on yeah what, i think yeah, what i would what i would say is that that what, go right back to where we <clears throat> Joseph Rubin uh, about the, the value and the importance of church history. 
when, when we're faced with scenarios as churches, as believers, that we were unprepared for, and, and surely all of us have to admit we were unprepared yeah. uh, to a greater or measure, uh, greater or lesser measure, then where do we go? We go to two places. We go to the scripture, but we go to the scripture as forged, as understood, as clarified through uh, the lens of church history, as purified through our fathers as they understood the scriptures and applied them in their own context. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to work it out from scratch. We're not biblicists. We're confessionalists. Mm -hmm. So we go back to our fathers. And that's where the church history comes in. We read our confession in its context and we come to understand what did they mean when they said this? What did they mean when we, they said that? Our brother Jim Renahan down in Mansfield now, IBS, has done such a great work for us here. His <clears throat> excellent book, Edification and Beauty, puts the ecclesiology of, of our fathers into its context, looks at the confession, sees how this is how to understand the scriptures and then presents it to us. So we go back to our fathers and we say, brothers, show us the way. How should we be responding here? And, and this is the help that we need. Uh, so, guys, you know, what you're doing is great. Press on with this. We need to be hearing this. I remember as a young minister, uh, when I said to somebody, I'm reading such and such church history. And this guy said to me, what are you doing that for? You're stuck in the past. You know, get get up to date. What you need is the Holy Spirit. And I just said to this guy, I said, what? So you think we have the Holy Spirit and our fathers in the faith didn't mm. so you have an answer to that? Yeah. <laughs> Think that the Holy Spirit kind of aged Amen. and matured, mm. and, and we, we get the greater <laughs> just such a lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we we need to be rooted in our confessional and historical uh, context and, and background, and that's where we can get the help we so desperately need. Amen. Well, thank you um, for that, and we will be sure to drop some links in the in the show notes page so people can find the resource and, and, and look into it, maybe grab a copy for themselves. But thank you for being here.